0: Valuable to, to remember the history uh, of uh, what, our, uh, what our, our forefathers, if you will, in the faith have done and how they've built, how they've kept this ministry going. And uh, it is uh, as generation after generation grows up and assumes the responsibility for the work of the church, uh, this ministry is part of our responsibility too. And uh, we need to build and grow and, and uh, preserve the, the work of the uh, family camp uh, that is now in, in our hands. Um, we, uh, that's a shared responsibility that we have. As I started to say, we are going to be talking tonight, tomorrow night, Jay, is, Jay Fluck is going to be preaching tomorrow night uh, on different aspects of worship. I understand Jay is going to be speaking about uh, the application of the regulative principle in worship, which is certainly an important topic. I would like to talk to you tonight about music uh, in worship, music in worship, uh, they always told us when, when I was growing up in church, in, in uh, Carl McIntyre's church, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that the choir of the church was also known as the War Department. Why, why, why is that? Because choir is where egos Come out, Right. Mm. Well, we're not going to uh, hopefully not going to get into that, but it, uh, very often music in the church becomes a point of contention between people, whether it's tastes in music or uh, convictions about music or or what uh, very often music becomes a point of dispute and contention in the church. That ought not be. But unfortunately, that is often the case. Uh, For our scripture reading tonight, I would like to take you through several of the Psalms of David, several Psalms uh, that uh, that are in our our Bibles. Uh, And I'm going to read them. I will uh, call them out. Not we're not going to take any in order or, or too many in order, but I'm going to call them out and read them. And as I read them, I want you to think and then we'll go back and discuss them. But I want you to think. What does this psalm tell me about music in worship? What does this psalm teach me about music specifically in the context of the worship of God's people? Okay, let's turn to Psalm 2, first of all. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion My holy hill, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations of the nations, your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord, my glorious one who lifts up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the jaw. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Let's turn several Psalms over to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. Psalm 100. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 117. 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149. That you thought I was going to say Psalm 119. Huh, no. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of His saints. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their King. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp, for the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to, bring their king, to bind their kings with fetters. Their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. Finally, Psalm 150. Now, Psalm 150. Remember this morning that glum Calvinists are a contradiction in terms. You think Psalm one fifty was said with a sung with a glum countenance? I dare you to say this psalm say it out loud and not get caught up in the almost wild enthusiasm and joy of this psalm praise the lord praise god in his sanctuary praise him in his mighty heavens surpassing greatness pray power praise him for his surpassing greatness Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and flute. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You cannot read that psalm or say it and not be filled and caught up with the joy Of being one of God's children, Amen. 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 What is music in worship all about? Why Why do we sing when we gather together? Why do we sing? Why is it almost unavoidable uh, when God's people gather together that they sing right after eating? (laughs) Well, no, think about it. I mean, you know, you can't have a meeting in, in, in an Orthodox Presbyterian church before somebody pulls out food. And, and, and you eat, uh, but singing is is right up there too. We sing naturally singing uh, i i 'm waiting for someone to write a book on the, the theology of singing. Why is it that we all, all of god 's children, uh, all of the redeemed of the Lord, have it in their very souls to sing, to sing praises to him, and we sing in worship. Singing uh, the praise of God is, in fact, one of the most, uh, it is, in fact, the principal activity of God's people. Now, in worship. Now, think about that. We say, well, don't we pray in worship? Yes, we do. We do pray. Very often, or most of the time, though, you're probably led in prayer by the pastor or an elder and you are with your hearts and minds following along with that prayer and adding your own assent or amen uh, to that prayer. Now yet you're being led in that prayer. Uh, don't we read the scriptures? Yes, we do. and We read them together, and, and that is good. But in the scriptures, uh, God is speaking to us as we read the scriptures. Praise in worship is distinctly... The act of the people of God as they come into his presence and as they give voice to their praise and their thanksgiving before the Lord. Uh, so we sometimes hear about, you know, complaints about worship. Well, the pastor does all the work or the worship leader does all the work in worship. And we're just sitting here passively uh, watching a show up, on the, up uh, on the pulpit. No, you are singing. You're doing a lot more than singing, but singing is the principal part of the congregation in worship. And because it is, it ought to be something that you, the people of God, learn to do. And do as well as God has given you the ability to do it. Uh, Some people don't think music is real important in worship. The congregational singing. They look at you know the three hymns that come. Well, that's just kind of the preliminaries that we have to get through before we get to the good stuff, and that's the, the sermon. Don't devalue. I don't like the current trend of devaluing the message of God or the message uh, at, and, and kind of trying to raise everything else up in the worship service by devaluing the sermon. But do not devalue the praises of God's people in worship. Don't think that that's some of the, just the preliminaries that we have to get through. It is your part to come before God, come into His presence with thanksgiving, with songs of joy. Praise is the primary purpose of music in worship. It is directed toward God. When we worship, the worship of is is. Uh, uh, as we gather for worship, we are gathering in the presence of God. And worship is in many ways a, a, a dialogue uh, between us and God. God calls us and we respond. Uh, very often we respond to his call with a, with a hymn uh, or a, a song of praise. Uh, he teaches us in his word and we respond perhaps with a hymn of, of that that uh, talks about our obedience. Uh, he challenges us with, the, with his law. uh, As we gather to worship and perhaps many of our churches read the Ten Commandments or uh, some other summary of, of God's law in your worship. Very often the congregation responds to that with a hymn, a hymn of perhaps repentance or a hymn of assurance because the law is not being read to you as a condemnation. It is being read to you. As God's people who are forgiven and out of love for God's forgiveness, you joyfully offer up your lives to obey, to obey Him and serve Him. And perhaps your response to God's law is a hymn of dedication, a hymn uh, that uh, that uh, rejoices in that God is teaching you how to live through His Word. Nevertheless, however it's expressed, music or the the Praise of God's people uh, is the highest expression of music in worship. And that is its primary purpose. Uh, what about uh, special music? What about choir? Uh, what about uh, having a soloist or perhaps someone who is exceptionally gifted at the keyboard come in and play uh, uh, play a song or a selection during the worship service? Uh, those things are, are uh Good, as long as they contribute to worship and not distract from the fact that you are in God's presence and that all that you do ought to reflect his glory. Those things are, are, are good. And as someone who has sung many solos in church, uh, I, I think we can appreciate that. But that is not the highest point of, of music in worship. Your singing is. Your singing is the highest musical expression in the worship service. I don't want to take anything away from you who play. Or, or By the way, uh, how many churches have choirs? How many of your churches have choirs? I should see every hand here. You are the choir. You are the choir. Uh, well, let me move on. Let me move on. Uh, another point that often comes up as we consider what should we sing then? And there's much debate in uh, in churches, reformed churches and other churches, uh, particularly though reformed churches. What music should we be singing? Uh, Some of our churches have been influenced by more modern styles of music, and the the use of hymnals has gone out of practice or out of style in many uh, many churches. Uh, I think that's extremely unfortunate. Bad move. The churches who have left off using classic hymnals, such as our Trinity hymnal, uh, have cut themselves off from the heritage of praise. They have cut themselves off from the heritage of praise. We sing hymns that were written uh, all through the history of the church. And we, when we throw our hymnals out, Uh, Yeah, we use an overhead for for some songs here, but when we throw our hymnals out and cease using them, we have cut ourselves off from almost 2,000 years of church history, not to mention the biblical psalms that are in our hymnals, not just a phrase quoted here and there and repeated 35 times, but the whole psalm put uh, put in verse form. Someone once told me, but you know, in our church, we sing praise songs. I said, well, we do too. In fact, God has given us 150 praise songs to sing. Hasn't he? 150. And we have added, uh, through the course of our our history, uh, several hundred others. Now, others believe and tell us that the music we ought to sing in church, in worship, ought to be restricted to those 150 psalms that all of our music in worship ought to be exclusively the psalms. Now, I disagree with that. I used to hold that position uh, when I was in, in a seminary uh, and all the faculty were exclusive psalm uh, singers. And I... How are you going to argue with them? I'm right. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a little student. I you know. I want to get out of here. So <clears throat> you go along with it. Actually, I, and I believed it. And I believed it. Then someone who came from a Covenanter background was no longer in the Covenanter church, but he came from a Covenanter background and he showed me some of these psalms, two of which we've read tonight, that begin with the words, Sing a new song to the Lord. And he said, as I, uh, as I began to reflect on the, the implications of that, what I began to realize the, was that the Lord Himself was commanding us to commemorate His powerful acts of redemption in song. And that when God acts, His people are to sing a new song and remember what He has done. And put that song, in, put that song into the, the, uh, the hymnody of the church so that future generations remember the mighty, righteous acts of our God. Now, I when I began to move away from my position of exclusive psalmody, I had a little wrestling match in my conscience because I had been taught that Exclusive psalmody was the position that was in conformity with the regulative principle. But now, if God has in fact commanded us to sing a new song and commemorate his mighty redemptive acts in song, then in fact we are, as we we do exactly that, we are in conformity with the regulative principle because we have a positive command to do that. Now, I do believe that the psalms, while we don't sing them exclusively, we ought to sing them frequently. And we ought to use the psalms as a model for our own hymns. We ought to see that in the psalms the constant pattern is repeated, that we praise God for the majesty of His nature and for the glory of what He has done. The majesty of His nature and the, and the, the things that He has done. the the glorious things He has done. So sing that new song. We are in desperate need, my friends, in the church of Jesus Christ today for people who understand that and who will, in fact, write hymns of praise to God that commemorate His mighty redemptive acts and speak to our generation as well. We do have a problem with some of the words. When you're trying to sing a song that was written four or five, six hundred years ago or, or in the uh, early church or something like that. Sometimes uh, the words are awkward. Sometimes. And we, we have a continuing need, uh, whether that were true or not, but we still, the church always has a continuing need for gifted people who can, uh, who can write songs of praise for the church, but that conform to the pattern of the psalms. That conform to the pattern. we're also told in Scripture that singing in the church, music in the church, serves another purpose. Not only are we giving voice to our praise of God for who he is and what he has done, but we are also, there's also a horizontal dimension to singing. Paul mentions this in, uh, in two of his New Testament letters, Ephesians and Colossians. Turn with me uh, quickly to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Familiar passages, both of these, in Ephesians and Colossians, but let's look at them for a few minutes tonight. Colossians 3, 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now, I'm reading out of the New International Version. I have to say I'm becoming increasingly disappointed. And this is a verse I'm disappointed in in their translation because, in fact, it's almost a paraphrase that destroys the unity of, of, uh, of a thought that is, I believe, one thought in the Greek text. Notice in, in the NIV version, it is, uh, it's almost as if Paul is writing about two different things. One, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And then a second thing, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Those two things are blended together in the original. They are not two separate things, not teaching on one side and singing on the other side. In the act of singing we are in fact letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. In our songs we are in fact teaching and admonishing one another. So there is not only the vertical dimension of our singing, but there is the horizontal dimension of our singing. Teaching and admonishing, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, that is part of the uh, purpose or what we would say another purpose, a secondary purpose in our music. That is uh, also a powerful argument that we must protect the purity of the content of our songs. We are not only uh, giving ourselves a warm, fuzzy feeling, and unfortunately that seems to be in many churches the primary purpose of music is to generate the warm fuzzies so, so that we go home with this kind of glow. Oh, I had such a wonderful experience. Didn't learn a blessed thing, but I had a wonderful experience. Content in singing is important. If we are to uh, achieve the, the purpose that Paul puts in front of us in this verse, we must protect the content. Doctrine in singing, in our music, is important. Um, I have a lot of favorite quotes from Charles Hodge. Uh, one of my favorite favorites is there's not a drop of water in all of Romans chapter 6. But that's a different message. The other, one is, the other one is some of the church's best theology is in her hymns. Some of the church's best theology is in her hymns. Take a hymn. The church is one foundation. You have in that hymn a whole course on ecclesiology. Take another hymn. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the veil. You have a a whole hymn there rich in the doctrine of the gospel and the assurance of salvation and the victory of the gospel. Think of other hymns that that are your favorites. And there's probably a reason that that they're your favorites. Probably because they have instructed your mind. They have helped you glorify God in a special way, or they have taught you a specific point of Christian doctrine and affirmed that to you in a clear and powerful way. Think of how we often teach our young children. There are many times when my sermons go completely over the heads of my children. But you know what they're learning? The songs. I hear them. They're starting to sing those songs louder and louder with more confidence. I hear them. How do we teach a child about the love of Jesus? Do we give them learned discourses? No, we teach them, Jesus loves me, this I know. And What is the foundation of your, your understanding of God's love? For the Bible tells me so. Teaching your child Vantilian apologetics right there. Well, kind of. (laughs) Get them off on the right foot. You won't have to undo somebody else's errors later on. The secondary purpose, Paul lines it out for us. Horizontal, teaching, admonishing, where we get our word of nephetic, admonishing one another. You come into church someday feeling sorry for yourself? World's all falling down around me. Work is hard. Family's hard. Kids aren't cooperating. People aren't getting along. Can't we all just get along? And you're feeling all wrapped up in your th- in your emotions and and, and everything like that. You're, you're even starting to get into that victim, <laughs> victim mentality. And then you go and sing a psalm of David where David was surrounded on every side by 10,000 enemies. And David's world was crashing down around his ears. And David said, I was sinking in the pit, but he pulled me up. He set my feet on a rock. How dare you get wrapped up in yourself? How dare you fall into the pit of despair? David sang songs about the deliverance of God and he experienced everything you experienced. Amen? Amen. Admonishing one another. That's an admonishment to us. That brings me to a fourth point. As we sing... And I think it's part of that, uh, not only of offering praise to God, but also teaching and admonishing ourselves. We find a pattern in many of the Psalms where David writes about his experience. And it is not wrong for our hymns to reflect the experience of believers. But I want to immediately qualify that and say that experience ought never to be taken out of the context of God's word and God's faithfulness. We do not just sing songs about my experience. But when David writes psalms about his experience, something that happened to him, uh, his son revolts, revolts from him and chases him out of the capital city and has a price on his head. David writes a psalm about his experience. When one of his generals turns against him and revolts. David writes psalms about that. When uh, a former friend turns his back on him. Or when David is caught up in, in in the guilt of a transgression. He writes a psalm about it. When David is on the the mountaintop experience, the mountaintop of victory, he writes psalms about it. But never isolates his experience from God's covenant promises, His Word, and His faithfulness, and His righteousness. Our experience can only be understood in that context. And it's only beneficial to dwell on our experience in that context. So, Writing songs about the experience of God's people is valid. It's something that should be done, and it very often is done. David did it, and we can continue to do it, but never isolating just our experience, always in the context of God. We live in God's presence. We, are never, we never escape from God. And our life is lived before him. And so our lives and our experience ought to reflect that, or songs commemorating our experience. Uh, again, um, George mentioned that uh, testimonies are something we ought to uh, to think about again. Testimony. David's songs of his experience are, in fact, his testimony uh, to us. He is, on a personal level, commemorating God's wonderful acts of salvation to him individually. Uh, when he was in danger and the, and the Lord rescued him. When he was depressed and the Lord rescued him. Uh, the Psalm of... Uh, uh, Psalm 73, which was not written by, by David, is a wonderful study on how if you allow your sight to be taken off of the, of the high calling of worshiping God and, and His majesty, and you, and you allow your, your thoughts and your vision to be dominated by the apparent success of, of worldly and ungodly people, how you can be thrown into depression. My feet had almost slipped. I almost lost my faith. When I saw how the wicked prospered. And and the psalmist goes on in that psalm and says, Until I went to the temple. Until I went and saw God in His majesty in the temple. And met Him face to face. Then I understood that their feet are on slippery ground. That's experience in the context. Of God's sovereignty, God's Majesty, who He is, and what He has done. David also, uh, in several Psalms, when he is writing uh, what we might say a testimony Psalm, Psalm of his experience and how God delivered him in a in a mighty and powerful way, David often includes in that Psalm that he's going to sing this song or he's going to go into the great congregation. And tell everybody in the great congregation or in the assembly of God's people that this is what the Lord has done. You don't sing. David wasn't going to say his uh, his testimony uh, in a corner. He's going to march right up into the temple, as far as he could go, into that temple, and he was going to stand there and call uh, in the midst of the congregation of Israel and tell them what God had done. Now that's a testimony. We don't like that. Uh, actually, I think we're a little skittish about testimonies because uh, it's been often abused. And uh, people often do start giving their testimony. Their testimony. <laughs> their testimony. Yeah, it's right like volleyball in the middle of the day. I was looking up. Um, they give their testimony, but out of context, out of the context of God uh, God's power and God's faithfulness. Or it becomes almost uh, look at, Look at me rather than look at the great God who saved me. We can be careful about testimonies, but I think, uh, there, again, in the, in the work of the church, in the, in the life of the church, there ought to be space for God's people to give uh, biblically grounded uh, testimonies that point others to the majesty of God and who he is and what he has done. I'd like to also say uh, something else, another uh, related to this, as we make sense of our experience. Very often when David writes a psalm that tries to deal with his experience, he starts out in a pretty somber, sad uh, downer. I'm surrounded by enemies. My friends have turned their back on me. Uh, So on. There are other psalms, though. We read uh, a couple of them uh, earlier this evening. Psalm 2 is one of them. Psalm 2. The nations rebelling against the Lord. Uh, the kings of the earth rising up and uh, throwing off the, uh, the uh, chains. You know, uh, exercising their, their uh, fable uh, autonomy. Trying to be autonomous from God's authority. And uh, God, what does God do? Well, he starts out by laughing at them. I think that is, uh, that is probably one of the sources of, uh, of a biblical understanding of humor is the folly, the folly of human rebellion against God. What does he do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them though all those kings with their nuclear weapons and their great big battleships and their, and their uh, million-men uh, armies and, and so on. He holds them in derision, the nations of the earth, are a drop in the bucket. He holds them in derision. And he says, here's what I've done. I have set my king on Zion. You kings think you are strong? You think you can be autonomous? You think you can make your own rules and rebel against my ways? I've got news. I have a proclamation for you. My king is on Zion. And I have installed him there on oath, an oath that cannot be broken. You see, there's a perspective on our experience in the future. In the present, I'm not going to say it's all in the future, but we need to be reminded, and I'll say it this way, that the Psalms are one of the most eschatological books of the Bible. Why is that true? David was given a covenant by God. David David was told that, uh, David, I really appreciate the fact that you have decided in your heart to build a temple uh, for me. Now here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to establish your throne and your kingdom forever. David, you will never lack for a son to sit upon your throne. David writes about that in Psalm 72, several other psalms as well. Uh, and it's clear in Psalm 72, might refer to Solomon. In fact, that the title of the psalm says, of Solomon. It's also clear as you read Psalm uh, 72 that it goes far beyond anything Solomon did. David is writing about his greater son. Jesus said, "If uh, <coughs> uh, why did David call his own son Lord? You see, David knew. And many of the psalms that David wrote are written in that context of the covenant that God made with him, the covenant that has its, its uh, focal point on his greater son, Jesus Christ, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is that son who is installed on Zion as the king, the one who, uh, according to Psalm 110, is not only king but also great, the great priest in the order of Melchizedek, the priest who purifies his people and then reigns. We and, you and I struggle on earth with those rebellious kings. We struggle with our rebellious hearts. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But David knew that a time was coming. David knew, and we ought to know too, as we read the Psalms and appreciate the eschatology of the Psalms, that the king, the king, has been given his place on oath on covenant oath that cannot be shaken that cannot be shaken and the king reigns and the king's people reign the king's people are given a kingdom that uh, 149th Psalm I want you to read that again look at that with me Psalm 149 it's uh, not one that we often meditate on Toward the end of that psalm, I want you to look at this, what is said there. This is one of the the praise the Lord psalms. It begins and ends with the hallelujah, praise the Lord. Look at verse 4. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. You want to go to bed tonight singing for joy uh, because of the great salvation that God has crowned you with. Now look at this, verse 6. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nation's and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence writ- written against them. He's talking. He's not talking about Christ. He's talking about the saints. Songs of praises in your mouth and a double-edged sword in your hand. I know some of you are saying he doesn't sound like a premillennialist. I don't care. Put a label on it. Whatever. That's what Scripture says. Notice what Scripture also says. This is the glory of His saints. This is the glory of His saints. One of the great themes of of the Scriptures is that the Son, because of His obedience to the Father, has gotten an inheritance. He inherits a people. He inherits a kingdom. A covenanted kingdom given to Him. One of the great themes is, right along with that, his people inherit it with him. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the king whom the Father has set on Zion and established by covenant oath. And you and I, his people, have been crowned with salvation, we go to bed singing songs of salvation and songs of praise, and we have those songs of salvation and praise in our mouths and a double-edged sword in our hands to overcome. And that is the glory of the saints. As we sing our songs, as we worship God, we offer praise to Him. We remember his, who He is, His mighty and glorious nature, His ma- majesty. And we remember and commemorate His mighty acts of salvation. We admonish and teach one another as we sing. We remember that, in, that content in music is important and should never be sacrificed. We also, as we sing, place our experience, what we have experienced in this life, the good, the victories, the defeats, the persecution, we view that in the context of God, our life lived before God, His Word, His righteousness, and His faithfulness. And we also look out and say, Jesus reigns. His people reign. People have been given that song of salvation, song of praise, and the sharp sharp two-edged sword. That song we sang earlier tonight, Onward Christian Soldiers. second verse says this, At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian brothers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of, Praise. Brothers, lift your voices. Loud your anthems raise. The author of this song uh, is saying, uh, Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. And then the next verse says, Brothers, lift your voices. Loud your anthems raise. He's basically saying, Hell's foundations are going to shake when you raise a song of praise. So get with it. Let's get with it, brothers, and raise that song of praise and give Hell's foundations a good shaking. When you worship, You want to do that. Shout for the blessed Jesus reigns. (coughs) Sunday, when you go back. Mm. Sunday, when you go back to your churches, or for the rest of the week, as we sing our songs tonight. Mm. Air's dry. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> I think that's better. When we sing, oh, yeah. <laughs> when we sing our songs, when you go back to your churches this weekend and Sunday morning, when you gather for worship, Give hell's foundations a good shaking. Send a shiver up that old serpent's spine. His days are numbered. Jesus reigns. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a pattern to follow in our singing. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the gift of song, that we can raise our voices together in united chorus, <clears throat> remember your majesty, remember your great deeds of salvation, that we can teach one another and comfort one another, admonish one another with those songs. Father, help us to appreciate